I heard uh, a little while ago about a couple, this is a true story, they're friends of friends, uh, a couple who won in a, in a competition, a holiday, and um, to, to go away somewhere beautiful, somewhere hot. And they were students at the time. They didn't have very much money, but they were thrilled about this. So they obviously went on the holiday, but they also planned to try and keep the budget, um, you know, keep costs down. And so what was communicated to them is that they would be able to have breakfast in the hotel. Um, and so their plan was, we will go to breakfast, we will stock up, you know, stockpile at breakfast, and then um, we won't have any lunch because we hope we'll, breakfast will sort of see us through. And then also what they did is they packed a suitcase full of pot noodles, and uh, their plan was, we'll just eat these pot noodles for dinner and, you know, it'd just be great that we're on holiday. So, so they did this and they went off. And apart from one evening, um, they sat on their balcony and they just ate pot noodles and, and enjoyed the sunset. But there, there was one night they thought, no, we'll treat ourselves. So they went to the hotel restaurant and they, they had a slap-up meal and they really enjoyed it and they put it on their kind of room number. And then when it came to checking out of the hotel and paying the bill, they went to look, and they were looking for the, the meal that they'd, they you know, they'd bought that was extra, and it wasn't on there. And they, and they asked, why is this not on there? And then the hotel management said, because you're on an all-inclusive holiday. Um, and uh, everything was included. So they've been sitting there for night after night after night with pot noodles when they could have been down there enjoying all the good stuff. Uh, I don't know how you'd feel coming home on a plane after a whole day like that, knowing you made that kind of mistake. Um, but uh, what I want to suggest is that actually, as Jesus' followers, we can at times do something a little similar, which is that we have come into the kingdom, we've come into a relationship with him, and yet, often, I feel, I know this is true for me, that I don't make the most of the riches that are available to us in our relationship with him. Sometimes um, because I'm just not aware that they're there. And there, there's so much goodness that we can enjoy that can impact and run through the whole of our lives now that we know him. And one of the areas where I think we should be impacted more than any other as we follow Jesus is when it comes to this question of identity. And that's what I want to speak to, identity. Identity being a sense of self um, that is kind of a durable core of who we are that exists regardless of what's going on up and down around us. And also a sense of worth, uh, knowing our value. And as Jesus' followers, I think that we have available to us the possibility of a deep, deep security and a deep sense of identity, knowing who we are and knowing what we're worth. And uh, one of the passages, and the one that I'm going to look at today, where I think we can see some of the keys to this, is um, this is in Mark chapter 1, and it's the story of Jesus' baptism. I'll just read it. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Uh, so just before we unpack that and what's in that scripture, a question. How do we find our identity today? How do we as a society, uh, you know, how do we do identity formation? Um, we're all of us a little bit like fish born into a particular body of water. Let's say the water's murky. And because it's the water we've born into, it's the only, we think that's just how all water is, that all water must be like this, because we've never known anything different. We're born into a historical moment. 
and into a particular culture. And because of that, what we can end up thinking mistakenly is that this is just how it's always been. And when it comes to this question of how are the world that we're a part of, the culture that we're in, how it forms identity in us, um, uh, that we can think this is just how it's always been. But actually, it's changed a lot over the time. Um, and certainly over in, in the last decades, it's changed dramatically how we do this, as many things have. Um, one of the things that's changed dramatically uh, over the last however many decades is fashion. Uh, here is a photo of what some of you used to wear. And when you put this on, you thought you looked good. Um, of course, today, times have changed. And today, none of us would wear such kind of like clashing colors as you can see here. Next slide, please. Oh, how did that get in there? Um, you know, so fashion has changed. Also, music has evolved. It used to be people like this were kind of like top of the pops. It, when top of the pops was a thing, which it's not now. And now it's instead it's people like this. Um, technology. It used to be things like this were what you would spend your money on, and people would be like, oh my word, you have one of those? And of course, that's no longer the case. It's now evolved into something like this. And so these kind of changes that have happened over the, over the decades, they're obvious to us because you can see them and you can hear them. Um, but there have been other changes that have taken place that are invisible. And so they're harder to see, they're harder to spot, but nevertheless, they're very profound. And one of the things that's changed is the way that we form identity, the way that we find identity. So if you were to represent that in a picture, you would you'd start with something like this. And this was maybe from our grandparents' day. The way that it was a we society, the way that we found our identity was through our role as part of a group. We were given a role, we were given meaning. We would look outside of ourselves and we would say, what does the group expect of me? That's the role that I'll fulfill. And in doing that, we'd find a sense of value and a sense of worth. But we've gone from the we to the me. And now, the way that we think about ourselves primarily is as individuals. And the question that we ask is, what's best for me? Um, you know, rather than looking outside to the group, we look within to what is my desires, what are my intuitions, what are my emotions telling me. I need to express these. And uh, it's not that one is necessarily right and the other is necessarily wrong. The best place to be is, is probably to have a balance between the two, to have a healthy tension. But what's happened since the 1960s is that the needle in terms of what, how we find our identity has swung from the group, the we, not to a more balanced position, but it's actually gone way, 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 way over to the other side, to the, the me. And to the point where uh, we're now part of a culture, the water that we swim in, um, where people talk about something called radical individualism. And what radical individualism is, is it's not having a healthy relationship with the group or the collective, but um, actually it's this, this uh, individualism that seeks to have freedom from all external pressure, from all external authority. So uh, freedom from all moral uh, or ethical obligations that might be imposed upon us by other people. Uh, complete freedom from institutions is, is what it's about. So that's why many of us are suspicious almost instinctively, of institutions. We're suspicious of the big political machine or the traditional mainline media. That's why social media is so popular, because it bypasses 
the institution. It just puts it into the hands of individuals. We're suspicious of religious institutions. We want freedom from all external authority, but freedom for what? Freedom to be me. Freedom to be myself, and really crucially, freedom to define myself. Um, the modern mantra when it comes to identity is this, I am who I say I am. And the way this is communicated to us, I've been finding out, is not through textbooks and, and lectures. It's not that we sit our children down and say, right, this is a drill on how to be radically individualistic. You know, that's not how it's communicated to us. It's communicated to us mainly through story, through the stories that we tell ourselves as a culture. And this happens from a very early stage. Now, I have four kids, so I spend an awful lot of time watching kids' TV. And uh, I don't know how many of you watched Thomas the Tank Engine when you were growing up, but I've watched a lot of Thomas in recent years, and I can tell you, Thomas has changed. Um, you know, the, the early Thomas would go on a journey to find Brendan Docks or to find Maithwaite Station. But the modern Thomas goes on a journey to find himself. And there is uh, there's a one we watched recently, a film called The Great Railway Race, where Thomas wants to compete in the train version of the Olympics. And he's trying to find which kind of like, which competition is going to suit him. Is it the one about being strong? Is it the one about being fast? And he tries all these things that he's not really very good at. And the kind of the film builds up to this great lesson that Thomas lands on at the end. And I'm going to play you an extract from it now. So here it is. Did you hear the lyrics? Being me now has its own appeal. And uh, it's not that I was sitting there with my, my three-year-old being like, don't listen, don't listen. You know, like this trash is, is destroying you. There's, there's some really good truth in this. You know, we want ourselves, we want our children to grow up being comfortable in their own skin, you know, and, and knowing that, they're, that their gifts, it's okay not to have every gift. You don't have to be like somebody else. There's a, there's a good message in there. But this message of being yourself has gone beyond simply be comfortable with what you're good at and relaxed about those things that you can't do. It's gone beyond that now. And where it's got to is a point where this journey of becoming yourself is like a moral quest. It's the heroic journey. The heroes of the modern culture in our society are the ones that, that against the odds, choose to rise up to become themselves. And again, if I can use another kids' TV uh, example, I don't know how many of you have watched the film Frozen, but this is a great example of that, where Elsa, the princess, has these magical powers. But um, they're kind of like, her society is a bit wary of these powers. And so she, they're considered a little bit dangerous, so she hides them. 
until she gets fed up and decides, I'm not going to hide them any longer. And she decides, I'm just going to let it go. And she sings a song, I will play an extract of it now, that once you've heard it, it will never leave your head. Um, and uh, this is kind of her moment of realizing she's just going to be herself once and for all. So here's the video. The lyrics are included for those of you who want to sing. can watch it in your own time. <laughs> but it's uh, in the we society, right, the group, the grandparents' generation, the heroes were the ones who looked outside of themselves and thought, the community needs this from me. The community expects this from me. So I'm going to do something called self-denial. My preference would be to do this, but this is what the community wants. I'm going to deny myself, and I'm going to fulfill that role. And they were lauded, and they were honored, and they were valued as heroes. In the me society, the heroes are the complete opposite of that. So rather than looking outside myself to what the community expects, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look inside myself to, to what I want. And then I'm going to assert that. I'm going to bring that up. And it, they may not like it. The community might not like it. Um, you know, God might not like it. My family might not like it. But I'm going to be me. And those are the people who we celebrate today as the heroes. And you can see the change there. And it, it, it's not, again, that one is right and that one is wrong. They both have negatives. They both have positives. But we're living in a society that, that, that is the me society. And so it's helpful to think through some of the consequences of this idea of I am free to be me and I'm free to define me. Um, that's part of the reason why there's a change, a rapid change that's taken place in the last decade in terms of our approach to gender to this point where we think of gender as something that's much more fluid than it's ever been considered to be before. If you watch the news, then you'll see that every now and then, these are the extremes, but every now and then it pops up where, where somebody's wanting to define themselves in a different way. So there have been stories in the last five or six years in the news about people who have born, been born with a particular skin color, but want to define themselves as someone who has a different skin color from the one that they were born with. Or people who have been born and are a particular age, but want to self-define themselves as having a different age to the one that they actually have. Um, or people who even have started to identify themselves as a member of a, a particular animal species. Um, and, and I'm not saying any of this, please hear what I'm not saying, to mock. 
Um, you know, I'm not wanting to communicate anything negative about people who have a genuine disconnect and experience that between their perceived gender and their biological gender, or their perceived age and their biological age, or their perceived uh, and actual race. Um, as Jesus' people, our role, when we're talking with people who have these kind of struggles, is to, to, they should find more empathy with us, not less. More compassion, more love, more listening, not less. Um, at the same time, what I am trying to say is we've got to see that this is a major trend that is happening in the culture that we're a part of. And it's, it's what we're told, the story that we're being told, is to be yourself and to define yourself is the route to security, is the route to happiness. I am who I say I am. What it means is I am my emotions and I am my feelings. And the problem with this, and there are good things, you know, there's good things about individualism. Thank goodness we've got the freedom to think for ourselves. Um, the, the, you know, I'm very happy I'm not living in the 1950s where we would have perhaps been put into stereotypes that would not have been necessarily very helpful or felt like we were. Human rights, individual human rights are a wonderful thing. Um, God makes us as unique individuals. So there's positives to it, but there is a major flaw in the story and we need to recognize this. And the flaw in the story is it says the way to happiness is to be yourself and define yourself. And the flaw is it doesn't work. I don't know if you've ever tried to just be yourself and live like that. I've tried it. I don't know about you. I find it a very confusing thing to attempt to be. Who, which self am I meant to be? I can be different on a Monday. I'm very different on a Monday from how I am on a Saturday. Which self is my real self? My emotions go up and down, on, on so, even just within the course of a single day. Not only that, but my inner feelings and my inner emotions, I don't know about you, but they're contradictory. So, so I have this deep inner desire to be healthy and fit and strong, and I also have a deep inner desire to eat cake and more cake, which is the real me. It's, it's actually incredibly hard to just be yourself and do that confidently. Not only that, um, but part of the reaction, and I understand this, in what's taken place is we need to shift from the pressure that we're, we're under to, to, to live up to our community's expectations, to be free from that. We don't want to have that pressure anymore. And that's great, okay, that's understandable. But what we've done in shifting to this story is we've just replaced it with a different pressure, and the pressure is live up to your own expectations. And, and again, maybe this is just me, but I find that's a huge burden. I can't live up to my own expectations for myself. I, however well I, I do, I always fall short. Um, and so what we find is a society that is immersed in this story from, from literally birth, and yet look around. Are we more secure? Are we more at peace? Because it seems that we've got more insecurity, more anxiety, more fear than we've ever had. It, it, it's a beautiful story with some real truth, but to swallow the whole thing is, is to be disappointed and disillusioned because it can't deliver on its promises. And what we have as Jesus' followers is a different story. And our story is that we are, we are given our identity. It's given to us by God. And in the passage that I read, 
we see um, you know, what's going on with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in this moment. And here's the first thing for us to get. This is a part of our good news. We are given a name by the Father. The Father names us. And what we don't believe is that we can just, it all comes from within. We actually think you need to be named from outside. Now that sounds oppressive because of the culture that we're part of. That can sound a little bit oppressive. But actually, if you stop and think about it, it does make a bit of sense. So, um, you know, this idea that we can all self-validate and self-affirm just doesn't stack up. Again, I have tried this. I have tried waking up in the morning, looking in the mirror and saying, Andy, you are incredible. Oh, my word. Beth is so lucky to have you. The church don't know what they've got with you, right? I've tried that. And you know what? I don't believe it. Um, You know, I believe it for a few minutes, but it's not the sort of identity that you can weather a storm with because you know what you're really like. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's, I don't believe my own propaganda. I don't know about you. So, so contrast that, and it's better to speak positively about yourself than negatively, but it's not going to build you a rock-solid identity. What happens on the, what, on the other hand, does help is if there's someone that we know, and it matters who, it has to be someone we love, has to be someone we love and respect and admire, but if someone we know comes to us and they speak something over us, so maybe you're a teacher and you are you know, having a really bad week, and a, a, a veteran of the school, you know, one of, the, one of them that's been there for years, and they're respected by the staff, and they're respected by the pupils alike. A veteran of the teacher just takes you to one side, and they say, hey, just so you know, whatever it is that makes a great teacher, you have got it in spades. I see it all over you, so you just keep going. Now, wouldn't that do something to you? If you're, if you're a parent of teenagers, and, you know, they stop speaking to you when they turn 13... But then they just have a moment and they just turn to you one morning and they say, you know what, Dad, you know what, Mum, you are amazing. I honestly couldn't wish for better parents than, than you and who you are. Now, again, wouldn't, that, wouldn't something in you just rise up if they said that? When we love somebody and we admire somebody and they speak truth over us, then what happens is that builds security and that builds identity. Now, if that is true of just on a human level, how much more is that true when we come to understand what God the Father says over us? That he speaks to us and he says, just as he says to Jesus in this moment, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Um, You know, he has a name for us and the name is son. The name is daughter. The way that John puts it, 1 John chapter 3, verse verse 1, he says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. So, God the Father names us. Here's another part of this passage. We see Jesus being baptized, and this is a picture of what's going to happen as he goes down into the water. It's like a symbol of his death. Um, What's going to happen at the end of the, the story where he's crucified And if God the Father names us, then God the Son dies for us. He gives up his life for us. So to say, oh, the Father names us, that can seem a little bit abstract, but there's nothing abstract about this. 2,000 years ago, on a hill outside of Jerusalem, Jesus died. He he died for me and for you. And in, in doing that, what he says to us is how much we are worth to him. I remember Mike telling me a story about 
um, he was listening to on the radio years ago, and it was uh, he heard a backpacker who'd been just got back from Indonesia telling some of his adventures. And one of the things this backpacker said is that he was on a boat going between some of the islands in Indonesia, and he just noticed that there was a guy telling a story to the other people in the boat, like locals, and they're all rolling around laughing. And he went up to him and said, you know, what's so funny? And so he said, he explained the custom, and obviously we're not saying this is right, this is just what they did. Um, but in those days, you would, if you wanted to get married, you would buy, you had to buy your wife. And the way that you bought your wife, it seems very strange to us today, is with cows. And the way that they did it in that particular group of islands is they said, look, depending on how attractive um, the, the wife is, then that's how many cows you pay. So if she's not very attractive, you might pay one cow. If she's very attractive, you might pay three cows. Um, the most that had ever been paid, though, in the history of this happening was five cows for a woman. And the guy said, the reason I'm laughing is because there is a guy on the island we're heading to. I've just heard that he has paid five cows for his wife. And he says, there is no way she is worth five cows, all right? So he said, you know, we're all laughing at him. And then they get to the island, and the tourist, the backpacker, decides he's going to go and find the guy that's paid five cows. So he does. He tracks him down, and he says, what are you doing? Like, paying five cows for your wife? Do you not understand that everybody else on the islands is all, you know, they're all laughing at you? Why did you pay five cows for her? And he said, the guy looked at him, and he said, I paid five cows for my wife because she's worth five cows to me. And because she knows I paid five cows for her, she can walk around the island with her head held high. And she can say, I am a five-cow woman. <laughs> you, three cows. You, one cow. Me, five cows. <laughs> and he says she walks around like that, and she becomes all the more beautiful for it. Do you know what you're worth to him? So so much more than just five cows. His very self, his very life. What, what blows my mind on it is it's like that he gives his life for me, not when I'm at my best, not when I've tried to sort it out and get it together and maybe become a little bit more attractive towards him. No, no, no. He gives his life for me when I am at my absolute worst. And on that basis, I can know that even if I have a bad day or a bad week, his assessment of me doesn't change. So we can walk around with our heads held high, knowing what we are worth to our God. And here's the final thing. Uh, if the Spirit, uh, sorry, if the Father names us and the Son dies for us, the Spirit, what he does is he falls on us and he fills us, like the embrace and what you see is this, the Father speaks over Jesus at this moment, and the Spirit falls and fills him. And he is the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of adoption, the Spirit of revelation, and he communicates to us God's truth. And there's something about the Spirit that, that we need that makes all the difference, because, because it needs to be for us more than just words, the communication of God to us. Um, my, my boys, every now and then, one of them has a nightmare. And uh, they come into the bedroom looking upset. And it happened a few weeks ago. And what happened is I went back uh, with my, my son. Um, and I explained to him. I said, listen, there's nothing to, to worry about. I sort of rationally laid it all out for him. And 
That didn't do the trick. And so the next thing I tried is I said, well, why don't I switch a little light on? I'll put it next to your bed. I tried switching a light on, putting it next to his bed. That didn't do the trick either. And so in the end, I thought, I haven't got a choice here. So I just said, look, get into bed. And then I lay down in the bed next to him. And we lay there together in the darkness. And for the first sort of 45 minutes, he kept turning over and just checking that I was still there. Um, and, and when he kind of got to the point where he was like, no, Dad's, Dad's here, Dad's not going anywhere, just ever so slowly, he drifted off to sleep. And then I got up and left. Um, but until that moment, he was just checking and checking and checking. And do you know what I realized in that moment is, you know what, I could be sitting here talking and talking and talking at him, and it wouldn't do the trick. But just being next to him. There is, there is something that he needs in this moment that's more than simply words. Um, there's something that, that will speak to his spirit, to his heart, to his soul, the place where he's afraid that's more than just me talking. And what he needs is my presence. What he needs is to know his dad is near and to know his dad is not leaving. And as Jesus' followers, how about you? But I find myself insecure, even though I know he died for me. I find myself questioning his love, even though I can write a book about the theory of his love. And what we need when we find ourselves in a place like that, sometimes it's not more words. It's his presence. It's being close, being in his presence, having him near us, checking every few minutes that he's still there. And gradually, as we do that, something speaks to our spirit about his love. And the way that Paul puts this in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, is he says, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. His presence says it to us in a way that's even deeper than the words he speaks over us. And for some of us, if you find yourself, like me, insecure in your identity, knowing that this is a great theory, but my word, I don't live out the reality of it, could it be, could it be that we have been so busy rushing around, so busy trying to achieve, so frantic in everything, that we just haven't for a while just been with him and just sat in his presence and meditated on what he's done for us and considered how he talks to us and just been there. And as we do that, what happens is the truth of his identity, it sinks into us more and more. We have good news, don't we?